0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Tessa was in her second year at university. She had the opportunity to go on an exchange program abroad and she was really excited about it.
2: You could basically go to any university across the world so obviously I spent weeks and weeks researching like the academic level of different universities, but also I kind of wanted to learn surfing, so maybe I could go to Australia. I definitely went through all of their course catalogues completely. I think I also looked at loads of 10 things to do in Adelaide, Australia kind of lists. Was that where you were going to go? Like Australia or New Zealand? I think Zealand? it was Sydney. Yeah, I really Sydney. wanted to go to Australia or New Zealand. Yeah.
1: How many weeks, how many hours do you think you spent on this decision making process? At
2: least like 30 hours. And then what happened? So in the end I had doubted for so long about which university to go to that I missed the actual deadline of handing in your preferences and I had to just choose from a list of places where no one ever wanted to go and I ended up going with the coldest city in the whole world. So for however long I'd been thinking about all the sunny places in Australia and New Zealand, I could go and learn surfing. I ended up going to Edmonton in Alberta, Canada. If you stand still for more than five minutes in minus 30, your eyelashes will get frostbite. So those are some valuable lessons that I learned in my year abroad.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. Why start with this story about Tessa? Well, because Tessa spent so long thinking about something that she ended up in a place that was the exact opposite of where she wanted to be. And I think philosophy is guilty of this as well sometimes because philosophy thinks and thinks and ruminates and talks and uses big long words like teleological and deontological and utilitarianism. But sometimes this is not the way to go about stuff. So often, so many of us spend so long thinking and ruminating over stuff that we end up not making the right decision at all, or not even making a decision. So how do we use philosophy to actually move forward and act in our lives? How can we make decisions? Why should we make decisions? And can we develop a philosophy of action? That's what we're going to be talking about today in this bonus episode with me, Bridie. Stay tuned. Most of you have probably heard of the paradox of Buridan's ass, named after the French philosopher Jean Buridan, who was around in the 14th century. This is the donkey who, finding herself halfway between two equally delicious piles of hay, cannot pick between them. She lacks a reason to pick one hay bale over the other, and so simply starves to death. This thought experiment has cropped up throughout history, most notably with Aristotle and later on with the Persian philosopher Al-Ghazali, Usually it's taken to be a comment on free will. You need free will to choose between two items of similar value. But it also raises questions of how we choose one thing over another. How, as humans, do we deal with competing choices? Professor of Philosophy at Antwerp and Cambridge, Benson and A, spoke on this question at our recent How the Light Gets In festival.
3: What I think that what decision-making really is, is imaginative. So I think that one thing that is, plays a huge role in decision-making is imagination. So take this example, which is not at all autobiographical. You get two jobs, uh, two job offers, uh, and you have to decide. So one of them is in a sleepy college town, really boring, no cultural life whatsoever, but excellent philosophy department, brilliant colleagues, amazing PhD students. It's one choice. The other choice, uh, a, um, a job offer in, a, uh, in one of the best cities in the world, the best city in the world, terrible philosophy department, huge teaching load, terrible students, terrible colleagues. What are you going to do? How are you going to decide? Uh, but I mean, if you don't like this example, you could also make, you know, should I marry this woman or that woman, or should I get divorced or not get divorced, something like this. How do we make this decision? I think the way we make decisions is that we imagine ourselves in one scenario <coughs> and then we imagine ourselves in the other scenario. So I imagine myself in a sleepy college town, you know, being bored to death every evening, it's just nothing to do. Or I imagine myself in the, in the big city and spending my life creating crappy papers. And then I, I just, on the basis of these two imaginative the episodes, I see which one I prefer and I go for that one. So what I do is that I imagine myself in a situation and imagine myself in a different situation and compare. So that's imagination, iteration one. Imagination comes in on a second level because we d- I don't actually know what these departments are going to be, I can, I, just, I can imagine what it's going to be. I don't have any information, like full information about what it's going to be. So I really what I do is that I imagine myself in what I imagine to be the situation. Iteration number three. The person who's going to live in these kind of scenarios is not my present self. It's my future self. And I don't have any exact information about who my future self is going to be. I can imagine what my future self is going to be. So again, I imagine my what I imagine to be my future self to be in this imagined situation. So this is a lot of imaginative episodes, none of which is reliable or, in any case, kind of tracking the truth. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that if the question is what's going to come, what's going to kind of yield the optimal decision? Nothing's gonna. This is not going to lead to any kind of optimal decision. But here's kind of a last twist, and I'm going to try to squeeze it into the three minutes. The whole question about what's an optimal decision is a wrong question. Because you can try to think that, oh, what's going to be the optimal decision for my present self? But your present self is not going to be there living in that small college town or that big city. It's going to be your future self. And who your future self is going to be is going to depend on the decision that you're making. Um, so. Okay.
1: Now, this is really clever and super interesting, but it's definitely guilty of doing a lot of thinking and not a lot of decision-making. Barry Smith, director of the Institute of Philosophy, explores this as he responds to Benson.
4: Spencer talks about those long-range, long-term decisions, you're trying to decide between two job offers, you've got a very long time to think about it, and actually having a long time to think about it is probably part of the problem because you're going to weigh it so often, you're going to do all these imaginative exercises and leaps, you're going to go up and down that staircase. But I think to be a good decision maker, you actually have to have several decision making mechanisms and they operate at different speeds and different scales. If you're in a situation where you have to act very fast to save someone else's life or maybe to take quick averting action, you need to have something that will produce the right result, that will get that fast. Think of skiing down a hill and you're heading towards a tree, swerve right, swerve left, or into the tree and die. You really just have to have a system that will simply take that decision for you. You actually don't want to be imaginatively projecting, it'll get in the way and it'll probably slow you down. And I think what makes you a good reasoner is having flexibility to be able to move between those different systems, to be contextually sensitive, to know when one system is required or another.
1: But then there's this issue to do with the identity of the self, which Benson raised. Who are we making the decision for if we're going to change so much, not only by the time that we're experiencing the decision that we made, but because of the decision that we made? You can get basically any philosopher to talk about identity of the self at length if you want to.
5: At any one time, we are capable of great. Okay, complexity. right. So,
6: um, returning to, to your to over your question, time, um, we
5: are immensely fluid and plastic. We change. There's a
6: peculiar sense in which, looking at ourselves, we can see the way in which we change in different social contexts. We can. I, th- th- I think the, it's, uh, it's
4: quite interesting it's because the idea of whether there's a single self. Um, I think there was somebody still there, led even though the memories weren't laying down the track of it. Maybe it had been it, formed earlier, but I'm so interested that it was preserved. So
6: we can have, a, at the same time, a sense of the incredible. Well, I mean, let's take an example. We've got to soap. watch
4: here. Is is there a single unified timekeeper here?
1: This is such a trait of philosophy. One question turns into eight ideas which multiply with each other until you're overwhelmed by all the unanswered questions. You start off asking, how should I make a decision? And you end up talking about the meta-metaphysics of a spoon that you might eat your cereal with if you even have free will to make that choice in the first place. So I think we need a non-philosopher to bring us back down to earth on this one.
5: I'm Kenneth Hamilton, I'm um, Head of the School of Music here, I'm a concert pianist and um, welcome to Cardiff University Concert Hall that represents the peak of 1970s media technology.
7: (laughs) On your path to where you are now, looking back, would you change anything? Would you have done anything differently?
5: You know that is a very interesting (laughs) question and I suppose I've never really thought fully about that, I suppose I'm not introspective enough. But basically, no, because the thing about hindsight is it's hindsight that each point in life, there are, there are all sorts of pathways you could actually take. And sure, you can go back saying, oh, maybe I should have done this, maybe I should, should do that. But I think the question you have to ask yourself, with the information you had at the time, would you have made any different decision? And I don't think I would have, certainly career-wise. So I've always actually had a lot of fun. So if, if the pleasure in life is measured in that sort of way, then, then no. But of course, there isn't any human being alive that doesn't think they could have taken different decisions in, in, in other respects.
1: That was an excerpt from our Uni Talks series where six form students interviewed academics from around the UK. I know that Kenneth didn't directly relate his answer about how to make decisions or rather how not to regret decisions back to music, but he was way more chilled about it than most philosophers are. So can philosophy learn something from other disciplines? Art and music often communicate ideas through action or symbolism rather than traditional linguistic arguments. Do actions speak larger than words? Emma Sulkowicz is a New York-based performance artist. Emma is tall and engaging and they have bright blue hair. Emma was at our festival this summer and I produced both of the debates that Emma was in and watched afterwards as they engaged in long, passionate conversations with members of the audience with a confidence and sincerity that I think perhaps gets lost in the Atlantic somewhere between America and the UK. For example, at one point I heard Emma ask, to someone who they had met three minutes earlier, but what do you want out of life? It's pretty much the conversation you would expect over here at Philosophy Festival. Anyway, all this is to say that Emma is really good at expressing themselves in words. But as a performance artist, that's not the way they choose to express their ideas.
8: I think that my actions will speak louder than my words ever will. So, I think that is evident in the fact that I'm a performance artist. Or at least that I've, uh, I think that I've most successfully communicated uh, what I believe in through my performance art. And I think that often when I'm asked to speak, it's because my performance art has reached people um, outside of just the kind of insular art world. I hope that I will be remembered for my actions, actually. Emma is
1: actually known for a particular piece of endurance performance art that she did while she was at Columbia University in New York. And the reason why I haven't spoken about this yet is because I find it really profound the way that she used actions rather than words in this particular circumstance to communicate something which women for years and years and years have been trying to communicate.
8: I have to be transparent about the journey that brought me to the stage today. Um, Sorry, I always get a little nervous before talking about this stuff because it's very personal. So, on the first day of my second year at Columbia University, a friend raped me in my own bed. My mother is half Japanese, half Chinese, and my father is Jewish. His parents were interned at Ravensbrück in Auschwitz. In other words, I'm genetically engineered to repress emotion. (laughs) Some rape victims scream and phone the police, but I went to the bathroom, examined the bruises on my throat, put sheets on my bed, and went to sleep. I told my friends, but requested that they act as if nothing had happened. We were to make it a non-event. Months later, a woman at a party asked me for a coffee date. She later revealed that she'd been assaulted by the same guy. We discussed rumors we'd heard about additional survivors. I contacted a number of them and heard their stories. Of the six of us, three of us reported our assaults to the university. Back then, I was not a feminist. I didn't even know what the word meant. All I knew was that we couldn't let this serial rapist continue harming our peers. The school found our rapist not responsible. In New York, survivors have up to five years to file a police report Um, But when I contacted the police, they harassed me so much that I had to cancel the investigation. Our case became a public scandal. We were featured on the front page of the New York Times. After years of bureaucracy and failed negotiations, we relented to the horror of spending our final year of undergraduate with our rapist. I made a performance art piece titled Mattress Performance, Carry That Weight, in which I carried a dorm room mattress, the same type as the one I was raped on, everywhere I went on Columbia's campus until I graduated. I never dreamed it would become a media sensation inciting mattress carrying rallies at 150 universities worldwide on an international day of action. In art class, I'd been taught to express my emotions through my art. In representing the weight we survivors carry and making it tangible, I just thought I was doing a good job.
1: Emma and others felt failed by the systems that were supposed to protect them. When that happened, they turned to actions instead of words to express their politics and experiences. Isabel Hilton, who hosted the debate that we just heard Emma in, asks Emma about this.
5: I mean in a way you found through your art practice carrying a mattress around for a year that's kind of pretty angry thing to do in a way (laughs) Um, and uh, I I, I mean I hate to suggest that there might have been a more pragmatic way to get to get the authorities to, to respond did you ever consider that and on reflection you know was it necessary to do that was it I mean, it clearly had huge symbolic value. Well,
8: well, the whole point you know, of it was, was that, that you
5: didn't manage to get a pragmatic response. I
8: mean, I am the kind. So w- I think there's a huge misconception about like who I am as a performance artist. People are like, "Wow, you rebel! <laughs> like you must be lawless." But actually, I'm like very <laughs> rule bound. <laughs> so like, you know, I was raised as like a perfect student. I got all A's. Like I did all my tests. I s- read every textbook cover to cover. Which is what I did when I was raped. So I was like, okay, first of all, you know, I have to keep being successful. I must bottle this all up, Um, get good grades, whatever. But then when I was like, okay, this is a problem that's bigger than me. This guy is assaulting other people on my campus. I was like, all right, let's follow the rules. So I was like, read the college handbook. Like if you are assaulted, please report to the rape crisis center. And I was like, all right, team, let's do it. Like, let's follow these rules. (laughs) So we did that and then we were like, you know, the school obviously wanted none of it. And like, you know, I, I can't even get into how crazy that experience of going to the rape crisis center at my school was because we would have to like add uh, some hours on, but then um, I, you know, people were like, well, you should go to the police. And I was like, all right, let's go to the police everyone. So we went to the police and, Again, it was like a circus, (laughs) like um, the detective kept insisting. I'd be like, so then he started strangling me and the detective would be like, so he got creative with you. And I'm like, I'm sorry, that's not my definition of creativity. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's just, so I was like, all right, we have, tried all of our options, right. I've I followed the rules, I'm gonna make my own rules. Houston, we um, do have a problem. Yeah. yeah, so so mattress performance was actually an extremely rule-bound performance. I, like, when I give talks on my artwork, I often like to show the three-page PDF of rules that I wrote out <laughs> for myself, because I, I love rules. <laughs> so it was like, if I am going from campus to a place that's off campus, I need to drop the mattress off at my dorm, like, all these little nuances Um, So so that's to answer your question. I tried. (laughs) I tried so hard to do what the system wanted me to do to help myself, but it just didn't work.
5: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
1: We asked Emma what they thought of being a festival where more often than not people are using words and not actions to communicate their ideas. I
8: think it's amazing, really. I, I really think it's amazing. I, um, so, so one thing I've talked about a bit in one of the debate I, debates I was in was the power of diversity of tactics. So I think that if everyone on earth were fighting for the things that I believe in, but the way I do it, we would get nowhere. <laughs> I, it's a, I was thinking about this on my way here. I was like, if everyone were an ambulance driver, no one be, would be able to put the person into the ambulance. Do you know what I mean? Like, We need everyone to be playing a different part. Um, so for me, I think that m- my, I'm going to be most effective when I act.
1: If what Emma says is true, then of course philosophy can learn things from other disciplines but that's no good. We need to work out how to make philosophy work for philosophy. Maybe wanting it to be easy is the entire problem. Here's Shahida Barry, lecturer in Romanticism at Queen Mary University.
7: I think an idea of philosophy for life, but a philosophy for life that is hard, So I'm sort of quite resistant to self-help versions of philosophy. Um, And I think the point of philosophy as a philosopher is to make life really difficult, to read things that make you think, oh God, life is unbearable and how can I ever cope with it? But things that reveal the complexity of life. And that's the kind of philosophy I love reading. And I hope that's the kind of philosophy I'm able to communicate and talk about with larger audiences. So I want people to be able to read my work, come to my events at How the Light Gets In, Um, and think about a philosophy for life, but a life that's difficult, and a philosophy that's difficult in kind. I think there is an idea that philosophy will provide you answers, but I think that there is a kind of blind spot in our knowledge, Um, and one of the great things that philosophers do, of all kinds, is to acknowledge those blind spots, the places that they can't quite see, and that you sense that there's something else going on in the corner of life. Um, And they try to find the language and the concepts and the metaphors to make sense of it. But it's about, I think, acknowledging the difficulty. That's the most important and interesting philosophy to me that says there's this blind spot, we know it's there. We're trying to make sense of it. We can't quite do it, but help us think about it.
1: Despite all this, all these words and arguments, all this uncertainty, the fact remains that if philosophy was just a lot of hot air, then we wouldn't bother with it. I mean, you're listening to this podcast right now. The point is that philosophy for life is hard. Maybe philosophy isn't supposed to have the answers. Here's Christopher Hamilton from King's College London.
6: I do think that one of the really interesting things about philosophical discourse is the way in which philosophers so readily present themselves as people who know people who have the answers. And it seems to me that a, a tremendously important thing, which is very, very largely lacking from Western philosophy, it's there in one or two unusual and great thinkers, including one or two people in modernity, but one other thing is that is lacking is philosophers who acknowledge and think about their own weakness, their own vulnerability, their own incapacity to know. And of course, that is a, it, that's a particularly difficult thing for all kinds of intellectual reasons, but also, um, in present day culture you know I mean nobody has asked me to come here as a philosopher and say to you well look, look folks you know I really don't know what the answer is maybe you know as well as I we invest people with particular kinds of authority <coughs> and you come here thinking that the people on the stage have a certain kind of authority and that's fair enough in a way I mean after all I've spent 30 years doing the w- working in philosophy and, and you've done other things probably much more interesting things but but if the philosopher can't also say i don't know i'm not sure this is this is this is a point where my own individual personality I- is too challenged to be able to say what the truth is let's leave it open let's just leave it then i think that philosophy betrays itself and one way in which i would express that is that the great 19th century danish philosopher soren kierkegaard said that philosophy should be written in the subjunctive So it's like the idea that you're always saying, it might be like this, it could be like this, so that a philosophical text or a philosophical voice would say, I've thought about this for a long time, I've talked to other people, here's the best I can make of the idea at the moment, what do you think? So that you invite somebody into a kind of dialogue and discussion and conversation, rather than, you know, qua philosopher presenting yourself as knowing, and that goes right back I mean, although Socrates was a very irritating person, I'm sure, it goes back to the idea of philosophy as conversation, as the idea of saying, I'm not sure, what do you think? So I very much like that idea of philosophy in the subjunctive and the way that fits in with these values of discretion and and, uh, acknowledgement of weakness and so on.
1: We think that philosophy should give us the answer, should give us a philosophy of exactly how to act. But if what Chris says is true, then that's not the point. The point is that in order to act, we have to be ready to be wrong. We have to accept that nobody, not even the world's finest philosophers, are able to provide definitive answers to what we do and how we should do it. We can never have a perfect philosophy of action. And that's okay because the best that we can do is try. And maybe read some books. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by me, Bridie Edison Child, with help from Irene Carter and George Buston. Also, a note to say that actually, I'm leaving the IAI, so you won't be hearing me anymore in the intro and outro to your favourite podcast, Philosophy for Our Times. But I'm leaving you in the capable hands of Irene Carter. Thanks for listening.